Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. and a half ago or so, maybe two weeks ago, I posted a very short solo pod on Israel, Hamas, Israel, Palestine, and how I did not believe that that was anything to do with the quote unquote end times. I also said I wanted to uh, do a more thorough version uh, of this topic. And here is me making good on that. And man, it's a great conversation with Dan Hummel. So you guys are in for a treat. He knows his stuff. And I think we covered basically everything I wanted to cover. So please enjoy this conversation about dispensationalism, including premillennial dispensationalism, which is the end times uh, left behind kind of a view uh, in some context. Mostly it is some historical and theological context uh, and a little bit of stuff uh, around the types of anxiety some of us might be feeling uh, given the escalation of war in that region. Okay, let's get into it. Dan Hummel, author, historian, UW, Madison, not Washington, Wisconsin. A beautiful, beautiful town and campus, by the way, back from my touring days. Thank you for joining me today. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're recording here in mid-October, so an absolutely beautiful time to be in Madison. You recently did an episode with Tim Whitaker on the New Evangelicals podcast. We are here to talk about this Israel-Hamas situation, but in an, almost an entirely different frame as that conversation. So what you guys focused on there was really the, sort of the, the global sociopolitics of Israel, Palestine, Hamas, the current situation, uh, kind of what we know, and the global socio-political history of Christian Zionism and Jewish Zionism that sort of led to the founding of the modern state of Israel in 1948, all that stuff. I don't want to talk about any of that. So we will point people to that episode. And probably, if if you think that's really interesting, maybe listen to that one first uh, to kind of get the sort of real world, real politic backdrop of that situation. I want to talk with you about the theological and biblical stuff around end times speculation as it relates 
to Israel, Palestine, especially the modern state of Israel, uh, and the, at that time, incipient Zionist movement that really animated what we know as premillennial dispensationalism. That is the reading of the apocalyptic texts in the Bible that leads to the type of worldview expressed in the Left Behind books. So we got a rapture, we've got a seven-year tribulation, we've got an antichrist after which we've got the millennial reign of Christ, and then finally, the end of all things. So uh, did I miss anything there? I think I did that pretty quickly, and, and I'm happy with it. Yeah, that's the high points of the, of the scheme. Yeah, that's the high points. Okay. And by the way, you're you're here because uh, you have a book called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. This is just very much your cup of tea, your topic, one of your research topics. So uh, also, I just loved hearing you with Tim. Tim recommended you. Thank you, Tim, for recommending Dan. Okay. So I want to frame the conversation, though, autobiographically, because this was among the most important topics that I have ever had to learn about. And the reason for that, as as longtime listeners will know, but Dan, you probably don't know, is that my my history with spiritual abuse, religious trauma, th- such that it led me to be a spiritual abuse researcher is through end times teachings. I would say I have a little bit of I have some effects from purity culture and other kind of harmful teachings growing up. But the only real trauma I ever experienced was around end time stuff. But because of that. I had to work through this issue so long ago that like I, I'm actually kind of fuzzy on some of the details. I had to go through this. I started at age 18 and I'm now 40. So like there are people for whom this will be really helpful and I want to do that, but I can't do it solo because it's been too long. Uh, and thankfully, mm. I'm not still in that space nearly as much. So let's just start with uh, the basics around premillennial dispensation right? This is the left behind view of end, end times. Is there anything that you want to add to what I said earlier about the basic structure of this view of the end of things? So maybe one thing to add is that in the dispensationalist uh, account, the rapture is an any moment event so that it could happen right now. And a lot of the you know hashtag rapture anxiety uh, type stuff comes out of People wondering uh, when they get home and no one's at home, like, did the rapture happen while I was uh, gone and my whole family's left and I'm just there alone or something like that? Um, so that, that that sets it apart from a lot of other ways that Christians have talked about the end times, which have often conversations about signs of the times or ways that that Christians would know the end is coming. And there is some of that in dispensationalism. We'll get to that about all the ways that dispensationalists try to predict um, the end times and all that kind of stuff. But but fundamentally, the teaching is that it could happen at any moment. And there's a there's a more sort of sophisticated theological reason why that needs to be the case. But then you, you hit the high point. So there, there's this very repeatable scenario that includes a seven-year great or seven-year tribulation divided into two. And right in the middle is 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 when the great tribulation starts. God will unleash Satan on the earth again. And there will be this figure named the Antichrist, who will basically be like Jesus in inverse. So if Jesus, you know, was fully God and fully man, um, the the Antichrist will be something like fully man and fully Satan or something like that, or something somehow Satan's going to rule yeah. through this person. But, you know, unbelievably horrible things will happen to the earth. Most people will die. There will be a remnant, particularly a Jewish remnant that will survive. And then it'll all culminate in the Battle of Armageddon, which for dispensationalists will take place in Israel, in Tel Megiddo, as they identify it, which is an ancient uh, sort of mound uh, city. And in that battle, the blood will go as high as the horse's bridle, you know, the, the, the type of prophetic language. Yeah. And Jesus, Jesus will be victorious with his army, and that will establish the kingdom, uh, the, the millennial kingdom. And this is where one you talked about the term premillennial dispensationalism. So the premillennial part is that Jesus will come back to establish the millennium. He will come back before the millennium happens and actually establish it. And Jesus will establish a millennial kingdom. It'll be a literal 1000 years. Jesus will reign with Israel. So with ethnic Jews who have recognized Jesus as the Messiah, and so there will also still be nations at this time. There will be all types of different people that have survived all this horrible stuff. They will have children and, and their nations will, will, will emerge and they will all pay fealty to Israel and they will come up to Israel as 
the passage in Zechariah prophesies and, and acknowledges Israel's greatness. And then at the tail end of that thousand years, there will be one more rebellion and there will be a final sort of dispatch of Satan to the lake of fire with all of his followers. And that will kick off the, the final judgment. And that will be sort of mm-hmm. the end of, I guess, history as we know it, where everyone will be judged and go to heaven or hell. And then we'll be in the end state, as you might call it in theological language. So, yeah. you know, as as complicated as this is, this is, of course, never spelled out this way in the Bible. This is reading passages and trying to right. fit them together all over the Bible. And and yet in the dispensationalist world, this is a pretty locked down scenario. So most dispensationalists will have something very similar to what I just said. There, there are quibbles on some of the details, yeah. but it's become the sort of standard way of talking about the end times. Yeah. Now, speaking in my own voice to listeners, I will say, except everything you just said, Dan, is not going to happen. Actually, it is not going to actually happen. Uh, I I say that personally, people will differ. I say that personally with 99% confidence, I would say. Now, some of those elements, like per, uh, a final judgment, perhaps, right? I'm, I'm much more open to something like that. You know, my my kind of progressive theological streak, a la Tehard de Chardin, is open to some really interesting interpretations of the millennial reign of Christ. Like, you know, he talks about this thing called the Omega Point. There's some point at which, mm-hmm. like, God and creation, like, sort of merge in this beautiful way. Sort of like the people who talk about a singularity with AI, but, like, between God and God's creatures. Uh, so I don't I don't mean to say none of that stuff will definitely not happen, but this whole premillennial dispensational program for the future uh, that will happen, you know, in the land of Israel, it is in my mind one hundred percent horseshit. I want to say that very clearly because some people are feeling some anxiety probably just hearing you recount those events. I know that I would have in the past. I didn't I didn't feel it anymore. And let me just also say that. There's hope. You're not going to stay this anxious about this shit forever. Okay, that's my little caveat. And and you and I may disagree on on some of this, Dan. I'm not not trying to rope you in on that. I want to make two comments, and then I want to ask a question about dispensationalism in general. The first one, I I just want to note, when you talked about how the rapture could occur at any point, I think that is where most of the psychological power comes from. Because from our human lived perspective, we have to always be ready for something like that. And that's why when people tell stories about being afraid, they get home, their mom isn't home. They think that they've missed out on the rapture. That is true in part because it's the type of thing that could happen at any moment. So I just think that's interesting from a psychological perspective. The second thing I want to say is in my own spiritual abuse the list of types of spiritual abuse that came out of my research. One of the subtypes is called embracing violence. And it includes things like violence in the Bible and, and war and other acts of violence on earth, uh, as well as kind of minimizing physical abuse and other types of abuse. But it also includes like the use of terror and horror to motivate religious decisions Most interestingly to me and where the embracing violence moniker came from as I was trying to make sense of these items that kind of grouped together through the statistical work was it's like, yes, God essentially and necessarily uses violence. That is like one of God's best tools for accomplishing God's purposes in the world. And I think the example of Armageddon and Jesus's army and the other army, and there's blood everywhere and he wins. And Driscoll references this picture of Jesus all the time in, in revelation as this like bloodied in man's man, you know, Messiah. That's interesting. Psychologically, like, yes, violence is not an aberration. Violence is like part of what God uses to do things. Those are the kind of, I mean, if you can, if you want to respond to any of that, please do. And then I'll get to my dispensation question. No, I mean, that, that all makes sense to me. I'm a historian first and foremost. So I'm not someone yeah. who tries to weigh in necessarily on the truth claims of any of this stuff. I am myself not a dispensationalist. So I'm, I'm not someone who thinks this scenario yeah. is going to play out. I do try to be, you know, I don't know if respectful is the right word. I try to acknowledge that this has been something that a lot of people have thought a long time about. Yeah. And this is what they've come to. And so to just take it seriously on those own terms. But I do think, I think you're right that one of the distinguishing marks of the dispensationalist system 
uh, as it's sort of popularized, is its focus on violence. And particularly in, in the 20th century, it's also been like a fixation with military technology yes. and, and geopolitics. And um, the, I won't be the first person to say it, it's it's often odd or downright weird or concerning when you read about some of the popular dispensationalist teachers who seem giddy about uh, an upcoming war or a new type of nuclear bomb. This is going back some decades or a new type of fighter jet that seems to comport to a certain prophecy. Right. This is where I, I guess I will weigh in a little. It feels a little at odds with the rest of the picture of what it means to be a Christian that I that I have today, which is maybe you even believe these things, but this should be a, a moment for lament and and sort of recognition of the gravity of what's happening, not a moment to speculate about, you know, sort of almost like like taking futures or something on 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 what's going to happen in the world that's going to you know lead to a lot of death and destruction. So I think you're right on there that that's been a particularly in the more popularized versions. That's been a really distinguishing mark of dispensationalism. And it's got people like Hal Lindsey, who someone I'm sure will mention major popular of, of this type of thing. And he's actually still uh, alive with us. But um, he will he will always reference his contacts to military strategists or the Defense Department as if those are, you know, sort of as important as maybe religious credentials to his way of of marshalling authority to what he's going to say about interpreting this or that prophecy. So you're right on that that's part of that culture. Let me just have a sip of water to rinse the vomit out of my mouth. <laughs> Hal Lindsey. Okay. Uh, so I was raised in, to s- some of the people in my world read the Bible this way. And I would say some of them either didn't or they didn't care that much, right? So maybe if you pressed them on it, this would have been kind of their view, but they're not focusing on it. Others, it was like front and center. We, I had to take a class in eighth grade in my evangelical uh, junior high and high school where we kind of did a whole Revelation and Daniel, you know, semester. I had already been having panic attacks about end time stuff at that point. So I kind of white knuckled my way through that semester. But like, so the question about dispensations, let me see if I get this right and you can correct me. So dispensation does not only apply to sort of the future. It's that there are these basically periods of time in which God relates to humans differently. So I don't remember all the names, but basically you've got like, you got pre-Noah, Right. There's a pre-flood dispensation. Is there even one before Adam and Eve sin? Maybe. Yeah. Whatever. It's innocence. Innocence okay. is innocence, the first one. Right. Yeah. Then you got, they sin. Now it's not innocence. But then we've got the flood and then God's like, okay, I'm going to do things differently now. Here's a rainbow. And then, so then we got the, that patriarchs or whatever up to Abraham. Now, Abraham, I'm making a new covenant that goes through some period of time. Maybe there's another one Then we get Jesus. Right. So there's like these different ways that God is doing. roughly interacting with God's people. And then one of those dispensations or two of them or whatever it is, like those come later. So the word dispensationalism, I've got that right, right? That's what that refers to. That's right. And the the normal standard number is seven, Mm -hmm. but there are many variations on that. Some down to five, some up to 10 or 11. But um, yes, it's this division of, as they would call it, economies of God's interaction with humanity. So different fundamental relationships God is having with humanity. Now, earlier on, like back before this was all systematized, one of the major l- charges leveled against dispensationalists was that they taught multiple ways of salvation. So depending on the dispensation, you would actually be saved. And and there were, there were some really, uh, I guess, from later perspective, problematic quotes from some of their leaders where it seemed to imply in some dispensations, if you just followed the law really well, you'd be saved. And yeah. in others, you required Jesus or something like that. As it was systematized in the 20th century, they've gotten away from that, and they've almost uniformly insisted it's always by grace that you're saved. Um, however, the fundamental way God interacts with humanity, the way God tries to empower humanity to accomplish the redemption of the world does change over time and particularly changes whether God is dealing with Israel and as in the ethnic Jewish people, ancient Israel that is seen as continuous with now the modern state of Israel, or with the church, which is this newer people of God. So they believe in multiple peoples of God. I mean, that, that'd be one way of saying it. Yeah. And and the dispensations relate to how God relates to humanity in with, with the, within each of those people within each uh, period of time. One of the things just kind of to note as a lens that maybe we'll bring up later 
that is especially problematic for me with this way of viewing things separate from kind of my issues with inerrancy and, and all of that stuff. Now that we know that the universe is billions of years old and that there are billions of galaxies with billions of stars in each of those galaxies, like this stuff just made a lot more sense if you believed in an old school three-tiered cosmology, you know, the netherworld below, humans here, God and gods or whatever up in the celestial spheres. You know, we're kind of like one big, you know, sphere basically or something like that. But now that we like now that we can put ourselves in that other timeline, it makes just so little sense to me. Uh, like, so even if people go, ah, oh, there, Jesus is going up in the sky. There he is. This is it. We're hearing the trumpets. It's like, is that also happening on Saturn's moons? Is that also happening in like a different, ga- you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it doesn't, I think humans are not very inclined to think of ourselves Like we didn't evolve to think of ourselves in cosmic context. We sort of evolved to survive the African savanna for 65 years with a tribe of 200 maximum people. So like that's maybe it kind of works because we don't like thinking that way. It's not natural for us. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I'm also bringing that in to kind of help with people's possible anxiety here to, to sort of already kind of poke some holes, but that has always been one of the most interesting critiques to me is like, how do we situate that? Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. And I'm sure there's been a lot of uh, end times fiction that's somehow contemplated. What does the second coming look like, you know, from space or something like that? Um, You know, one thing that's interesting. So um, in terms of, you know, the age of the earth, there is a strong correlation between young earth creationism and dispensationalism. They both read Genesis one yeah. literally Birds but what's interesting feather, for sure. Right. Right. And actually there's a historical connection between the people, the proponents of both of those oh. being uh, really tied together in the 20th century. But one interesting thing is if you go back a hundred years, so there's a famous Bible that a lot of dispensationalists have called the Schofield reference Bible. Yeah. And it's, it's written or it's, the, the notes of the Bible are all sort of the dispensationalist system. And they're written by this guy named Cyrus Schofield who lived in the 19th and early 20th century. Interestingly enough, Schofield was not a young earth creationist. He was someone who believed that the earth was millions of years old. I don't know if you go with billions. He was, you know, early sure. 20th century. Yeah. Um, but, but he believed in, uh, a certain way of interpreting Genesis 1 that is, is called the gap theory. And almost no one believes this anymore. But it's the idea that between Genesis 1, 2 and 1, 3, there's an indeterminate amount of time that is probably millions of years that will help explain all the geologic records of all the fossils and right. everything. And also that there, there was a civilization that basically rose and fell during that era. And that some of the things we see in the fossil record and in the the archaeology record are from the civilization that is not mentioned anywhere else directly in the Bible, but is but helps explain some of what we're finding, particularly in the early 20th century in the geologic and archaeological record. So another way to get an old earth is to like turn some of the language into poetry, right? Like mm-hmm. then he created this, then he created that is like, well, those are long processes. Maybe there's some evolution in there, or, you know, whatever. They would say only microevolution. That was what I would have been told growing up. Five points if you know (laughs) if the phrase only microevolution means something to you. But that's really interesting. That's like uh, almost like an ancient aliens kind of a vibe or even like a a Mormon Bible vibe, uh, which, of course, that does take place later. But like it's off. It's like off our books as Americans, right? It's like, oh, these, we should be finding, this should be explaining some things that all these, this, these civilizations rose and fell kind of without our, without our records of them. Yeah. So it it is, I mean, it, it, obviously this predated all the ancient alien stuff, but it, it, it has a resonance. And, and just to close out Schofield, he also did not believe the days of creation were literal 24 hour days. He thought they were symbolic for eras or, or sort of demarcated periods of time. So anyway, that's all to say, a lot's changed since Schofield and Schofield was a very conservative, you know, he believed in biblical inerrancy and everything, but he did not tie that to a literalistic reading uh, as we would understand it now with Genesis one. And so that, that uh, tight association, which then gets to, I think one of your, the cores of your question, sort of the, the, the earth centrism of of the way that a lot of these prophecies um, that, that really is a, a, you know, we're talking like the last 70 or so years is when that's really developed into this popular where, you know, millions and millions of people are imagining this is the scenario 
of the end times. Uh, that's that's a much more recent development. That's one thing I hope that history can do, but particularly history of dispensations, just to realize that these are not uh, teachings passed on from time immemorial. They have pretty recent, relatively speaking, settings and and reasons why they came into being when they did in the 19th or 20th century that actually go a long way to explaining why they were so appealing and why they got so popular so quickly. But often, I, I know I thought this, I thought this was like the default way that Christians had always thought of these things, right. going back to, you know, Paul in the in the apostles or something. And to realize that there are elements of dispensationalism that have a long history, at least if you isolate them from the rest of what is being taught, but that the system itself or the way that these things are all fit together, this particular reading of what's going to happen is is much more recent and has as much to do with American history in the 20th century than it does with, you know, an authentic reading of the Bible. And even conservative Christians outside of America, this view has always been far less popular. I do think there's a kind of American egocentrism, a kind of a cultural egocentrism that other nations would be like, uh, we're probably not that important in the grand <laughs> scheme of God's plan here. We're not Israel, you know, mm -hmm. but then as a superpower, you know, you whatever you can you can kind of hypothesize psychologically how that happens. But I want to ask you a little bit about how it got popular. I want to let you and listeners know I recently just rebroadcasted a two-part series from a couple of years ago where I interviewed four baby boomers who were around during the Jesus movement. And I asked them like, what was their experience? Like why my kind of my number one question was why by the time 1998 rolled around and I'm 15 or 1996 and I'm 12, uh, why by then did like every evangelical in my life, even in California, you know, not backwoods, Alabama, why did everybody agree that this was going to happen this way? And why was it so obvious to them back in the early 70s in the Jesus movement that Christ would be returning every day? How could Hal Lindsey sell millions of copies or a million copies, whatever it was, you know, top top 10 nonfiction book of the 1970s with the late great planet Earth? What's your sort of like bird's eye historian's view briefly on why this did become so popular uh, especially in the last 50 years, like around the start yeah. of the Jesus movement. Yeah, the bird's eye view, the, the what we call modern dispensationalism started in the 19th century. It came out of a very fringe sect of British dissenters named the Plymouth Brethren and this guy named John Nelson Darby, who was really the first thinker to put together a lot of the teachings that we now call modern dispensationalism. And, uh, you know, he was a fringe person, but he did visit the United States a, a number of times. His theology ends up catching on less through him than, than and more through his popularizers, other brethren who are better writers and better at talking in a common language. It ends up getting picked up during the Civil War and right after the Civil War for very interesting reasons that I won't go into here, but they do have to do with Reconstruction and race and and other things mm. that were meant that there were a number of white pastors in particularly states that were torn apart by the politics of Reconstruction, looking mm. for a way to articulate the role of the church in an otherworldly or spiritualized way, as opposed to a way that would draw them into Reconstruction politics. It was a way to pull them out of Reconstruction. Okay, Dan. So straight line from let's say 1870 to 1970. Your middle of the Vietnam War, which is tearing apart American society, mm -hmm. sociopolitically at the seams into two warring factions. And along comes the Jesus movement, which really in so many ways, not to step on your toes as a historian here or cultural critic, but like in so many ways is a, a real moderate position because they accept the aesthetics of the hippies and Billy Graham, even at that Explo 74, 72, whatever year 72. that was. 72, right? He adopts a, a real kind of a, a chill version of the language of protest and, and all of that stuff. And he says, you should, we should absolutely be involved in these issues, but he would never want them to be like protesting. Like he's not, and, and that's not what they wanted to do either because they were basically, they were moderates, which is how they end up voting for Reagan eight years later mm -hmm. and becoming the, you know, like my parents basically, and uh, who I love and who raised me very well. But, you know, they weren't, they weren't reactionaries. They were not true progressives. So if that's the role that it's playing, well, if we, we take the conflict out of the country of Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos, the real conflict is actually in the spiritual realm 
and it's a bigger deal. Well, we can sort of, it's like finding a place for that angst that doesn't, you know, and we haven't, it's, I feel like pastors have tried to do this with Trump and stuff, like find something else to talk about, but the Trump culture war will have none of it. No, 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 sir. You will preach about this current war in our country right now, or we will find someone else to do it for us. But that's kind of a, a really interesting lens of like, that's, yeah, I love that. And, and I can draw a direct line to the Jesus movement. One thing that dispensationalists going all the way back to the, you know, Reconstruction era, they, they would say that the the gospel or that the thing that the church is called to do is not to reform society. It's to right. preach the gospel. It's to convert people. And so then things like Reconstruction or things like the Vietnam War are like distractions from the role of the church. The church yes. is about getting the gospel out and getting you know conversions. And so that that's really where the impulse comes from. I do see a through line. I think you can even explain to some extent the Christian right in the 80s and 90s. Many of them are dispensationalists, people like Jerry Falwell and Tim LaHaye. They're, if you if you pay close attention to how they're ta- talking about why they're getting politically active, they are talking about basically the state encroaching the church's ability to be evangelistic, to be the the most outward sort of the, the most aggressive outward facing church it can be. And so they're still you know hundred of years later using the same type of framing. Well, but just to continue the story, so so this gets popular in the in in the U.S. in the 1870s, 1880s. The really important person, Dwight Moody, who was like the Billy Graham of the late 19th century, the most yeah. well-known preacher in the country, ends up adopting certain parts of this teaching, particularly around the rapture and and an imminent end. And he's an evangelist. His main goal is to get people to convert. So one way would be you don't know when Jesus is coming back. You better convert now and not not wait and be left exactly the way i talk about that is like okay let's say you've got a bunch of teenagers and you can do a like a a fright night kind of a thing where you try and uh scare them into uh, making sure they accept christ because well they could die like me and and you go to things like a drunk driving accident Mm -hmm. there are things like that where sometimes teenagers die but we all know that teenagers don't die all that often. And so, whoa, now we've got the rapture. Now that would make everybody die in, in effect any moment. And so if you just look at it as like, how strong can we push this lever of you got to take this seriously right now, which is ultimately what you're wanting to do if you're trying to encourage a conversion. I'm not even really saying the motives are wrong there. I'm just saying if that's the end you're going for, if your goal is conversions, what levers do you have to push? I think in 2023, the best lever the average middle American pastor has is actually Trump and the culture war. That's probably their strongest lever they have right now. But in you know other times and places, if you've got that, well, the rapture could come. You could die. You could die tomorrow. Look what's going on. There was an earthquake just reported in Papua New Guinea. The peace talks are failing in Israel. Oh, I'm not only going to die if I'm the one in a thousand kids who gets leukemia or I'm the one in a hundred kids who's in a car accident or something, you know, mm. every 10 years. Like it's, you know what I'm saying? So it, it makes it way more more pressure on the current moment and it makes it more efficacious, I think. Of course. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it, it, it's the reverse way as well, which is people become evangelists because they believe this and they feel an urgency to get the word out. Right. So right. Um, the, the, the it, you're sort of self-selecting who becomes an evangelist because yes. evangelists are those who are convinced time is short. They should dedicate yeah. their life to to this. And, but, and Moody was definitely yeah. that. Though Moody started, Dwight Moody started not a premillennialist or a dispensationalist, but he came to view that as being the right view, partly because of his contacts with these brethren, this this sect. But Moody is such an important figure that basically by 1920 or so, most of the evangelical infrastructure, and here we're talking about the revival circuits, the Bible institutes, this is a new type of educational institution that emerges, um, the Bible conference circuit, which is uh, something that's not nearly as popular now, but used to be sort of the main way that that people would get known, and mm. all the many of the missions agencies, so the ones that are going global with the gospel, all of them have a strong dispensationalist influence on them. Yeah. And so we, we move into the fundamentalist period after that, and where there's a big sort of split within the bigger Protestant world, and much of the fundamentalist world is dominated by these dispensations. Not totally, and that's a big part of the story, is that not all conservative Protestants 
are dispensationalists and that it becomes a very strong point of tension between more covenantalist, as we call them, and more dispensationalist theologies. But by the time, you know, the baby boomers are being born in the 50s and 60s, much of the infrastructure, many of the church denominations, particularly the independent churches, many of the seminaries, many of the uh, publishing houses assume dispensationalism as the right theology. And here's where it also gets tied into this idea of literalism and biblical inerrancy sort of all mm-hmm. being bundled together so that a a conservative Christian or, or sort of as we call it, a Bible-believing Christian uh, is one who believes in an inerrant Bible. And the way you, you sort of prove that is that you're reading the Bible literally, that there aren't symbols and, and sort of things you can weasel your way out of, but that it's literal and plain. And this is the dispensationalist way of reading the, the Bible as well. And so they become very prominent in the more academic uh, spheres. P- places like Dallas Theological Seminary become centers of theological training, teaching dispensationalism to hundreds and hundreds of pastors. And then by the 60s and 70s, you get a very potent, popular version of this that is is about reading the the current Cold War context within a dispensationalist mindset, linking it up yeah. with prophecy, and then being very good. I mean, we, we've sort of been joking a little about Hal Lindsey, but it, whatever you say about Hal Lindsey, an amazing popularizer, someone who mm-hmm. takes a very seemingly arcane set of theological beliefs and whittles them down, distills them into something that, you know, the the hippie would read and actually say, I think I believe that. Yeah. And part of that was his ability. And, and by the way, most of his books were ghostwritten or co-written. And it's important, um, I guess, to give her credit. Her name was Carol Carlson, and she ghostwrote most of his popular books. Um, credit, so, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Yeah. She's actually a very <laughs> shadowy figure that there hasn't been much written on her, but she was an oh. important ghostwriter for a ton of these major evangelical figures in the 70s and 80s. Wow. But he would do things like he would call the rapture the ultimate trip. Uh, so he's, he's using sort of like 1970s language or the yeah. Antichrist is the future Fuhrer. So drawing on the Hitler language uh-huh. to talk about the Antichrist. And this, of course, does something that any a, a stodgy uh, seminary professor at Dallas Seminary doesn't have the ability to sort right. of make it interesting. Whereas people like Hal Lindsey and then Tim LaHaye, who co-writes the Left Behind novels, they're really good at this. And that's part of what makes it just the, the sort of lingua franca or the, the assumed theological background to the Jesus people and so many evangelicals in the 1970s and after. If you love this podcast, if you find it helpful, I would love if you would consider joining the Patreon campaign. It is $7 a month and it includes two, usually three exclusive episodes per month for patrons only. It also includes ad-free episodes that sometimes even have a little bit more conversation in them that gets cut out of the main feed. And it includes access to the patron-only Facebook group. This 7 bucks a month uh, helps us pay for work from Kristen and Josh, as well as putting my own time into the show. I also love getting feedback from patrons of the show, questions to answer in question and answer episodes, and all kinds of just information from you guys, responses, feedback to help us make this thing better. And I just, I love, frankly, I love interacting uh, with people in the Patreon community. Most of that happens on Facebook, but I also will comment on posts on the Patreon app. And you get through Patreon, you get this special feed that you can put into your regular podcast player that allows you to hear those patron-only episodes. You don't even have to go anywhere weird to hear them. It's all right there. It's very simple. And you can feel good. You can feel real good about supporting something. Basically DIY. This is something that we make ourselves. We're not connected to any corporation or company. uh, And it's just very, very appreciated. If you sign up for a full year, you also get something like two months free. So that's another option. If you know you're going to be here for a while. You can also at any time go in and change to that, even if you are a regular monthly patron at this time. Okay, enough of me jabbering and asking for money. It's not comfortable to do, um, but I do truly, truly appreciate it. Okay, back to the episode. Let's talk a little bit about how the Bible is read in this world. You've talked about inerrancy and you've talked about uh, and, and actually that came up in my end times popularity with the four, the four interviews of like, 
a number of them said there was a sense then. I think there's a sense now. I think the psychology of it uh, and sociology of it is unchanged in conservative Christian circles where it's like, look, if we have a question and we're not really sure which way to go on it, probably the more faithful thing is to lean more fundamentalist, more literal, more straightforward, that that is like ultimately what God would want. And you, you then broadcast that you're a true believer. It's it's the exact same way that politicians uh, on the farther left and farther right will broadcast themselves as the true believer. I'm a, I'm the real socialist. I'm not one of these fucking sellouts or I'm a true conservative. This guy voted with Biden on four items, you know, so go with me. I really think it's probably the same sort of module uh, mm-hmm. of the individual and group, you know, brain or, or sort of psychological interaction with each other that like, that's a, a that's the, the most straightforward way of going with it. And so you're saying how, you know, if you take this literally, not, not just inerrant, not just lacking error, but when it comes to whether we interpret that error lacking text figuratively, poetically, or no, no, it's Black Hawk helicopters because those look like giant metal locusts. So then that's probably helicopters, you know, like, like that sort of a move gives you a kind of a bona fide, right. That you're, that you're a true believer, but in terms of the actual text, like the, the stuff in Daniel, I think it's like the weeks, right. There's a bunch of weeks written in the book of Daniel. Obviously there's a bunch of stuff in revelation. It's odd that we would both say, and they all say this, we, when possible, we interpret literally not metaphorically. And then they go, so this beast with seven horns, that's the United Nations. You know, it's like, mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. uh, why, why would not say it's a beast coming out of the sea with seven horns? Right. Like, why has that got to be figurative? Anyway, okay, now I'm, I'm getting ahead of my skis. But can you talk a little bit about the actual way people have to read the text to to get to this place? Yeah, and you're hitting on something with your your sort of digression there that um, even the literal reading isn't literal in a, in a totally literal sense. It's, it's, it's a way where there's an assumption that there's a correlation to real world events that there's basically one level of symbolism and that's it. So the beast represents the European union or something like that, um, which, which is still trying to correlate it to uh, near future events. And I think, I think the key thing is to understand there are, there are many different ways to read something like the book of revelation and uh, the way that dispensationalists do is often called futurist. So it's the idea that most of what's in revelation has yet to be fulfilled. And so we are to anticipate its fulfillment and therefore draw these correlations between what does this piece mean? What do these seven scrolls mean? What do these trumpets mean? And, and to think about because dispensations believe it could happen at any moment, they tend to be very near future minded about it. So mm-hmm. whatever tech is going to be in the end times, it's probably going to look similar to the tech now. It's not 10,000 years from now when we couldn't even imagine you know, what the world would be like. Why isn't it? W- wouldn't that be just as likely? Well, they would claim that, that there have been enough fulfillments, such as the state of Israel being founded in 1948, right. to indicate that we're somewhere near the end. And this is where I, I critique dispensations in the book for this, they want to be sort of defined as as being any moment in the rapture. They don't try to date set, at least on paper. And yet in practice, they 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 benefit a lot from implying it's just around the corner. Um, some of that. Yeah. yeah. And some of them have actually set dates. Uh, Hal Lindsey being one, he, he said a generation is 40 years. And so all this stuff shouldn't happen after a generation of Israel being founded. So he actually talked about 1988 as being an important year. Of yeah. course, that came and went and he revised him himself. But futurism is, is just one way to read the book of Revelation. But it's the way that's most popular. And, and frankly, it's just the most interesting for a popular audience. And I think of, yeah. you know, you talk about the default of, of reading this way as maybe the more faithful way in, in some sort of assumed way. And I think, I mean, just to, to give you a big concept, Americans are populist and democratic by nature, and they are deeply influenced by the Scottish Enlightenment, if you go back uh, enough time. And the Scottish Enlightenment assumed it was what was called common sense realism, that yes. every person had the innate ability to basically reason toward the truth in any context. Yes. Um, and, and this was actually, you know, this was a sign of the dignity of a person, right? That, that, that you didn't have to be yeah. a, a king or a scholar to right. understand the world. Well, when you, when you, 
take that to the Bible, it means in, in the most crude form that anyone can get to the, the true meaning of the Bible using purely their own faculties of reasoning. And I'm sure as you and I would agree, uh, the Bible is a very difficult text to understand. It's not written in English. It's not written anytime right. recently. Right. And so actually, it, it it's not maybe the best way to go at the Bible. That doesn't yeah. mean that some of the core truths can't be gleaned if you aren't a scholar. Obviously, you can you can piece together what was Jesus saying, what was his message, yeah. all that kind of stuff. And like the Catholic Church and others who would go with something like infallibility, what they will often focus on is like, look, all the things necessary for salvation. That's right. a way of saying you can figure out that like you sin and Jesus has offered a, another way. If you want to talk about different, you know, like a basic atonement theory, you know, Paul will talk about Jesus dying for our sins or John three sixteen or something. Like the idea is like a normal person can grasp enough to like be in God's good graces, essentially, right. yeah. and and live a faithful Christian life. And that's a much. That's also a thing. I I mean, I'm not. I'm neither an inerrantist nor an infallibilist, infallibilist anymore, but. But that's a much more, in my opinion, reasonable take on things than like, uh, I mean, it's often referred to as the perspicuity of scripture and perspicuity mm -hmm. is the idea that something is clear on its face. If you speak the language it's written in, in this case, the language it's been translated into, <laughs> right. it's interesting that they'll add that one in there. And, and just for, for my money, if people are curious, Christian Smith's book, The Bible Made Impossible is a slam dunk case against the perspicuity of scripture uh, and the best thing I have read on that question. But we, you know, that's not what we're here to talk about today. So when I got to college to bring it back to a little bit of autobiography, I skipped through many panic attacks on the way there. I read a book called end times fiction and it was, uh, it was a book by someone who was also an inerrantist, I'm, I'm sure, or something like that. But he, he was not a premillennial dispensationalist. And he was arguing for an alternate view here called amillennialism. And it was, he was still basically reading, you know, in, in the sense of he's still an, an inerrantist. He's still saying all of these things apply to historical events. But what you mentioned about futurism, he was not a futurist. His right. argument was most of these things already happened in the year AD 70. There was compelling evidence. He thought that like the name of Emperor Nero spelled out in Hebrew letters. Each Hebrew letter has a numerical value. You know, it would like add up to 666 and um, the streets running with blood. Like this stuff matches pretty well. Uh, historical descriptions we have of basically the, the Roman sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And so he's like, look, this stuff is not about stuff that's going to happen. It's about stuff that already happened. And we are therefore in the millennial reign of Christ right now. We are in the millennium. And so other things will happen later. But here is a way to not read it that way. So amillennialism, that's like an alternative to premillennial dispensationalism or any other form of dispensationalism. Do you want to talk a, a little bit about like the other options for, you know, if you're in. If you take the Bible quite seriously, like here are still the other options that people have read, like conservative Christians have read into the text. And and let's bracket amillennialism for a second. So okay. if we if we talk about dispensationalism as futurists, they're reading these texts as happening in the future. Yeah. What you just described as the author you read, End Times Fiction, he would be called a preterist. So he thinks that that term means people who think most of Revelation has already been fulfilled um, back yeah. in, in the history. Yeah. There's two. Uh, there's two other views, and none of these are deciding how seriously you take the Bible or if you think it's inerrant or not. You, you can be a, as serious as you want uh, with these views. Another one is called historicism, which, unlike futurists, they don't. Historicists think a lot of it has happened throughout history, including trying to line up, you know, Napoleon or yeah, the Black Plague or something like that, or the Black Plague. Yeah, and so and so that's another reading that has been it's it's much less popular now, but it used to be very popular in the Middle Ages and mm -hmm. early modern period. And then a, a fourth one is called idealism, and this is the one where you read most of prophecy as symbolic, as somewhat timeless. So instead of trying to see it as a sequence of events, it's actually trying to capture some deeper reality about God or about the struggle between good and evil. And that's a that's quite a popular view today as well. And I think I just read a, a, a commentary on Revelation by Scott McKnight, the, the New yeah. Testament scholar, and it was in the idealist mode. It was about how, like how we can read Revelation as Christians today, not to decode 
the poly, not to be cold what's going right. to happen, but to, to sort of take heart in the timeless message of Revelation. So all of these are different options. And then um, depending on the option you use and depending on some other commitments you have, you will land and either be a premillennialist. And I mentioned that's when you believe Jesus will come to establish the millennium. And most premillennialists are futurists in how they read this stuff. You might be an amillennialist, which is actually not a great term. It means a millennialism. So no millennium. It more should be like a realized millennium. Like we are cur- like the church is currently the millennium, right, not in any right. literal thousand year way, but it it sort of represents Jesus's reign. Uh, That's know, right. Emerging reign on earth. Yeah. And then there's postmillennialism, which is the idea that basically the church is to achieve such a point that there will be peace on the earth. And then Jesus will come back at the end of that. So he will come back post millennium time. That used to be the dominant uh, American view up until the Civil War, at least, and even for a while afterward. When we were still full of ourselves until the Civil War knocked us onto our haunches and we're like, ah, maybe we're not that great. Maybe Jesus. I mean, it's it's really funny to look sort of sociologically and sort of national psychology wise, like the psychology of a whole nation or culture of like when things are going well, people become post-millennials because they think, ah, we're killing it. When things are going really poorly, they become pre-millennials. God's going to save us from all this bullshit. And it's like, it's, you know, you can almost like graph that out. Uh, And probably when eventually we have, if we ever have like 300 years of Google word search data, you know, you can, you'll be able to like match that up with the economy or sort of like how people are feeling about global politics and stuff like that. You know, it's interesting. Like during the cold war, the post-millennial thing would have seemed so silly. Like we've Mm. got two superpowers aiming nukes at each other. How the hell is this going to go so well that then Jesus comes back because we really did it, you know? Like that the sort of plausibility structure of all that stuff changes a lot with the global political situation at the time. Yeah, that's right. And and on the on the flip side, premillennialists had a really good time during the Cold War because it seemed like not just that Israel was founded as a nation, which seemed to fulfill some literal ways of reading Old Testament right. prophecy, but that, you know, it seemed like we were headed toward a decline of civilization in general with nuclear weapons. And yeah. and that's one way to see the to sort of take move away from the theology is that postmillennialists tend to see gradual improvement over time and progress. And so in the 19th century, before the Civil War, Americans were very progress oriented. They understood themselves to be at the cutting edge of civilization. If you go back to people like Jonathan Edwards, he thought the kingdom of God was coming through the through America, the colonies at that point. And then when you get to the Civil War and afterward, there's all these really sticky problems of industrialization, war, uh, nationalism that seem like, oh, I guess we're not moving toward a bright future. And yeah. so premillennialism, which tends to be much more, you could say, pessimistic about the future of humanity, uh, becomes much more popular among a, a wider sweep of people. And I end my book on dispensationalism. One of the one of the things I end with is saying, in a way, this has been part of the uh, what what dispensations have bequeathed to a broader American culture is a set of a language and a set of tools to think premillennially about all types of things, including the climate, mm. uh, the future of American society in a sort of negative culture wars uh, type sense that we're beset by immorality and um, all these other yeah. things. And it's been a very pessimistic. It's always looking for problems on the horizon mm-hmm. more than solutions. And that's, I would say that's been, uh, uh, to get to your point, that's been a broader part of American culture for a few decades now, at least, where there's a lot of, you know, pessimism. We know this from polling that that young people are very pessimistic about the future. And you can even see it in the way we do um, fiction now. I mean, it's all dystopian. It tends to be dystopian, mm-hmm. tends to be very cloudy about sort of what's the next thing that society is moving towards. Whereas if you even go back to the golden age of sci-fi, for example, very optimistic, very much about how, you know, we're going to achieve the next level of consciousness, uh, all that kind of stuff. That's not trendy now. That would be seen as very naive and idealistic. And so even in our pop culture, we are in a secularized way, a a sort of premillennialist culture right now. I think that's true. And at a personality level, if someone happens to be conservative, there's a tendency to lionize the past against the future Mm -hmm. uh, as well. And so that kind of fits in nicely there. If you just happen to be conservative, which I don't put a value judgment on, uh, unlike some of my peers on the left. Uh, Okay. So you mentioned idealist readings of these apocalyptic texts. And what I, I wanted to throw out one more and ask you about it that may or may not always fit into that camp but the way that I have most often seen these apocalyptic 
texts been understood by biblical scholars and theologians is really kind of through a liberation theology lens of like, these are texts, it's a genre of writing that emerged from a poor class of people to help them make sense of their current, their at the moment subjugation by a power or empire or something like Mm -hmm. that which is certainly true of the early church that wrote Revelation. It is certainly true, I think, if I've got my dates right, it's that Daniel is written in exile. So Jews being exiled to Babylon, uh, not self-determining, not self-governing, right? And so that it's almost like a genre that reflects a kind of cultural or national malaise, a deep darkness, an expectation that, well, we, we have this relationship with this God who is good, and yet this is our current situation. So I guess this is how God's going to deal with them, how God's going to mm-hmm. put things right. How does that map on to sort of that idealism category? Is that is that a subtype of that? And is there anything else you want to say about that kind of more uh, more sociopolitical way that it's interpreted often these days? Yeah, I would definitely put that the liberationist reading as a, you know, a a type of idealist reading. Yeah. And I think I think thinking about it that way also helps you understand some of the you could say the tropes or the the style, the stylistic points of the genre, including the the violence. I mean, we're talking when it's positioned in that way, a lot of the violence is about overthrowing oppression and and evil forces, you know, being dispensed with. And I'm not going to go into if that justifies the violence, but it certainly gives it a different spin than just in a vacuum uh, talking about violence. Yeah. And then the, also the, the the genre of apocalyptic literature is also tends to be quite, to borrow a term from a different religion, Manichaean or, or quite stark, uh, good and bad. Everyone's mm-hmm. either on one side or the other. And ultimately, even if the dark side or the evil side is is overmatching the good side, the good will always triumph. And this can feel pretty simplistic for a nuanced uh, sort of uh, prestige TV, TV uh, culture in the in the twenty first <laughs> century or something. Yeah, but you have to understand that th- these were reserved; th- these were texts that were supposed to give people that were powerless hope. And yeah. and a sense of that that all was not lost in their in their moment, and so it can help explain what might seem sort of a simplistic uh, narrative uh, trope uh, today, which is a clear good and bad, uh, light versus dark. But actually, it's not meant to sort of be a good story in the sense that we might think of a good story, but it's meant to actually give hope to the people reading it. Um, and there's a number of ways you can read this, but but they all would be within the idealist tradition, which is to say what it, what what a liberationist is not doing even where the writing or interpreting the text is not trying to line up a sort of a very clear scenario of events that like a journalist could then uh, report on or something like that. It's much more about the deeper spiritual meaning of the text and how that, that in some ways, how that spiritual reality is more important than the, the events on the ground in real time. And liberationist is, is just one of the, uh, the traditions that has used that over the last 2000 years, more than that, because that, that genre goes even back before Christian times, but it's probably been the one that we forget most about, particularly in a modern American context where it's either we want to read these things in a vacuum, or we just assume our sort of middle-class background. And then we have very particular views on violence or other things that may not be what the writers uh, intended for those. Yeah, that's great. I value your wanting to be kind as a scholar and historian. And so I'm I'm going to ask you, though, to give me some information <laughs> that helps my listeners understand how successful these predictors have been, because that's one thing you get. You get a lot of prediction in especially this premillennial dispensationalist thing where you're constantly checking the newspaper for signs and and signals that this stuff's going to happen. Now, John Darby got one thing right. He got that the nation of Israel would be founded as a modern political state without, we don't have that much time. So I'll summarize what I know about it. And you can just correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, His, his view, he was involved with then the Zionist movement in, in the UK and Europe and the Zionist movement eventually becomes kind of partners with the the type of uh, Protestants who are reading the Schofield Bible as that kind of dispensationalism kicks up in popularity in the United States. And of course, after World War II, the Zionists succeed and the world, the rest of the world 
takes part of Palestine and, and gives it to Israel, right? So that that happened, but it's not as if it happened in a vacuum. Uh, his his scholarship in material ways contributed to that prophecy becoming fulfilled, or his I should say that prediction uh, coming fulfilled. Because also that language is not strictly speaking in the text. It doesn't say a modern socio political state with borders. You know, like they didn't even have. <laughs> I mean, that, mm-hmm. I guess they have the Roman Empire, whose borders are are technically always moving, but. Like, so he gets that right. And that is the one that every dispensationalist will point to as like kicking off all the other ones in terms of other concrete predictions. How approximately how many would you say have been made by major figures ballpark? Guess the jelly beans in the jar. And how many of those that you know of have come true? Yeah. Um, Well, just one correction. Darby himself wasn't involved with Zionism. He was actually very anti-political in that sense. Many of his followers were very involved, though, and took his teachings and applied them and, in fact, supported Theodore Herzl and other early uh, political Zionists. Hmm. Darby dies in 1882. So it's it's just before political Zionism okay. really emerges on the scene. But, yeah, but, OK, what I, the thing I had read about him, though, is that people described him as maybe he wasn't politically active, but he was a astute geopolitical observer. Oh, sure. Like he, yeah. So he had he kind of had his finger on the pulse about that stuff. Whether or yeah. not that that's not the same as sort of being outright involved in politics with your name and stuff like that. So that, yeah. thank you for that correction, though. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he he definitely was someone who was looking at Jewish migration to Palestine, even in the 19th century and saying this is prophetically significant. Yes. Yeah. Um, OK. So, I mean, OK, one distinction I just want to make uh, quickly is between and I do this in my book. I, I try to distinguish between scholarly or academic dispensationalism, which mm-hmm. would be very boring, actually, to, to to be on its own. It's a lot of theologians arguing about stuff. And then pop dispensationalism, which is what most of us think of. It's all the big preachers, all the big authors. So if you're just talking about that group, they, I mean, what, thousands of predictions over the, and, and there's, there's sort of been the overt predictions, like this thing will happen or these people will fight. Yeah. And then there's been all the sly predictions, which is, you know, asked or stated in a question form, could this be a fulfillment yes. of prophecy? Yeah, yeah. Or um, this may happen or look for look for prophecy to be fulfilled if these things happen. And then they, of course, want to take credit. I, I compare it sometimes to the way you watch like a pregame show for football or something. And there, there's all this hedging about what's going to happen in the game. And there's some expertise on the side of the people talking, but who knows what it is. And uh-huh. they're never really car- called on the carpet if they're wrong entirely. They just yeah. move on to the next week and say it again. So, I mean, I think that's the way, unfortunately, you have to think a lot of these pop dispensationalists are basically entertainers, uh, religious entertainers. Yeah. And, and it's much more about the excitement of making a prediction than any sort of truth or verification behind it. So yeah, 1948's a big one that seems to fulfill these certain prophecies. 1967, the war where Israel occupies all of Jerusalem again, and then ultimately takes it over. That seems to fulfill a a prophecy in Luke about the times of the Gentiles ending as as they um, understand it. And then every war since then in the Middle East has been seemingly indicated, but of course we're still here and and yeah. the, the rapture hasn't happened yet. And then there, there's also a really bad track record on failing to predict things. So like the end of the Cold War was news to dispensationalists as much as everyone else. It was sort of a surprise. Yeah. And there were a bunch of books written in the 80s, which just assumed that the Soviet Union would be the chief rival of the U.S. for for the foreseeable future. So, you know, you can, you can ask questions about, you know, why didn't, if, if this is such a significant development, why wasn't that part of the prophecy that, that these certain powers would fall? There's been a lot of activity pre- predicting around the wars in the Middle East that the U.S. has been involved in. There was a, a pretty famous, infamous book in 1991 called The Rise of Babylon, which had a big face of Saddam Hussein on it. Yep. And that was supposedly Hussein was going to be the Antichrist or something. Another round in 2003. And particularly in the last couple of decades, it's been Iran, Iran and it's it's factoring in. Yep. Even this this Israel-Hamas conflict that's happening right now, you know, a number of pastors came out the week after the, the violence started and did it more in those questioning tones, like, could this be a fulfillment of prophecy? But it's all Russia's Gog and Iran yep. is Magog. And I remember when it was, well, it was Russia and then it was whoever was closer to Israel with more guns. So it might have been Iraq or something. In the Syria, 90- yeah. Syria, yeah. right? And it's like, fuck. They just like, well, this is the thing, Dan. Most of these signs, air quotes, are inherently 
open to interpretation. Earthquakes, wars and rumors of wars. I mean, literally name me a moment in the Earth's <laughs> history when there's enough people on it that there were not earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars at all moments, at all, at right. every instance. I get angry because it's so psychologically convenient and these fuckers do not take a minute to question if they have evidence for what they are saying. Obviously, I'm getting into my feelings here right as we have two minutes left. I'm sorry for that. Maybe the listeners like it. I don't know. I think you're you're right that that there's a there's a way where this is somewhat the the star of the show is the predictions and it's also sort of the most vacuous part of pop dispensationalism. It's the thing that you know I, the, the the most recent one I I was reading about was um, Greg Laurie, one of these megachurch pastors, yeah, who who he 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 hedged it, but he said you know if a war opens up on the northern front with Israel and Hezbollah. This might just fulfill that prophecy about Israel being invaded from the north, right? So, so right there you have, is that a prediction? I don't know. It, it's sort of an analysis saying this is more likely than not, but he also has a way to say, he, he framed it all as an if statement. So if it doesn't happen, well, no, no, no skin off his nose. So that, that's been the way that particularly the more popular people, and this is how I try to tell the story uh, of the, of, of what I call the fall of dispensationalism in its more ironic sense. So not a fall as in it disappears, but it's actually mm-hmm. turned into this really simplistic, thin way of, of public discourse. It's 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 largely beholden to consumerist and political interests. Yeah. And there's a consumerist part, which is about sales and views and everything yeah. else. And there's a long history of that going back to televangelism and before. And then there's a political part where these types of ways of invoking prophecy are meant to get you to think a certain way about the world, about the U.S., about what the U.S. should be doing, about what the actors in the Middle East uh, represent in, a, in yeah. a larger moral sense. And those, unfortunately, have been some of the, t- the two of the biggest legacies of pop dispensationalism has been as a consumerist product and it's very successful there. And then as part of the mix of a certain type of politics, that's now very popular among evangelicals, particularly on the conservative side. Well, Dan, fantastic conversation. I think that we, I think that that's really sad. It's a sad state of affairs, but also no one listening to this doesn't already know that it's a pretty sad state of affairs on the right at this particular moment. And, you know, at least it's not the trumpets are about to sound at any minute. At least it's mostly hucksters. And that's really sad when your grandma sends you a foreword of, of one of them and, and has given money to some bullshit ministry. It's really sad. Uh, but if you're anxious about this all coming to an end and Jesus appearing in the sky, I don't think you need to be anxious about that. I think you just go on loving your neighbor as yourself. Dan, fantastic conversation. Thanks for being here. I think we also succeeded at not covering the same ground that you did with Tim. So these are really nice companions. And and Tim said he's going to link to this one too. So very cool. Thank you so much. We're going to have links to your book and and your website in the show notes and all that if people want to get in touch with you. It's been a pleasure talking. Uh, Really enjoyed it. 